Reading this morning is from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kirk. You guys may have a seat. The passage that uh, Kirk just read to us this morning is going to push us to ask a, a prevailing question this morning. And that question is this, what are you most against? What are you most against? Let's pray and ask the Lord for his mercy and help at, at this time. Father, we are grateful that we once again are here, that we are gathered as your people, that you are with us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us this morning. I pray that you would uh, bring us the measured amount of conviction, the appropriate amount of encouragement and exhortation, that we would not just understand this text intellectually, but we would be affected by the living and active word. We'd have desires for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And then we would know that those who are found in Christ are found forever in Christ, loved by the Father. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Nearly uh, one million babies are aborted every year in the United States. Uh, there are a rising number of elderly people who are being abandoned or outright neglected by caregivers. There are uh, parts of the United States, and certainly in Canada, where the uh, extremely ill are at higher and higher rates being euthanized 
Uh, in some cases, it's the, it's the first thing that's offered to such a person. More and more, there are geneticists, there are scientists who seem comfortable eliminating embryos where Down syndrome or some other aspect of a chromosomal uh, defect or abnormality is found. Cultures, societies, kingdoms assign value to their people. And so does the kingdom of God. It's not a unique thing that we find in our culture in our time that uh, certain classes of people, certain types of people are given a certain value. We find in the kingdom of God the same thing. I think Jesus shows us that here at the beginning of our passage. So as we arrive in in this passage, we see the disciples. Uh, Jesus and the disciples have arrived in Capernaum, and we find that the, the, the disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest. They're, they're having an argument, a disagreement. You can imagine it was pretty impassioned knowing the players that are involved, uh, including Peter and James and John. They're, pre, they're preoccupied with uh, rank and, and recognition. It seems that that is what is on their mind in this particular time. And to have those things on your mind, especially as a Jew, anticipating the kingdom of God and the Messiah, uh, seeing that Jesus and knowing and confessing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, it wouldn't be unusual for a Jew at this time to, re- to be really preoccupied with rank in the, in the kingdom. Who's going to be number one? Who's number two? Who's number three? These things were very, very important to the Jews. And so you can imagine that this is the type of conversation that the disciples are having. But this particular context is incredibly embarrassing for the disciples. Because what have we just seen in the passage before this? We have just seen Jesus, for the second time, tell his disciples that he is going to be delivered up, suffer, and kill Have you ever said something really, really stupid at the absolute worst time? I know I have. I continue to do that. That is seemingly a skill that I have. You can imagine that there could have been a worse time for the disciples to speak about greatness. And yet they do. And we know that we do. We know that when Jesus asks them about what they were uh, talking about, we know that they're actually embarrassed. And the reason that we know that there is in verse 34, because when Jesus asked them, they're silent. They're silent because they know that they shouldn't have been talking about such things in the face of Jesus. Jesus is teaching them and he's teaching us this morning here in 2024, another lesson about discipleship. We've seen this over and over again in the gospel of Mark that Jesus talks about the nature of himself, the nature of the kingdom of God, but then he also talks about what it means to follow him. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And so to really illustrate this lesson to the disciples. He takes a little child that's in the house. He picks up this little one and puts him in his arms and says, whoever receives or welcomes, that's how you could uh, uh, translate that word receives, whoever welcomes, whoever is hospitable to a child is hospitable to me. In fact, he, he says, not only is 
that person welcoming me, he's also welcoming the one who sent me. He's welcoming God the Son. He's welcoming God the Father. So whoever pays attention to and cares for a child in the name of Jesus, a child who uh, is the lowest on the social scale, a child who is appreciably has no value, especially in this culture, whoever recognizes, welcomes, honors, picks up, they have fellowship with God. That's what Jesus is saying. Those in the name of Jesus Christ who lift up children, who pay attention to such one as this little child has fellowship with God. You let that sink in a little bit this morning. What does that tell you about who is valued in the kingdom of God? The question here in this first part of our passage is, are you against your status being threatened? That's the first blank on your handout. Are you against your status being threatened? Because certainly uh, the disciples in this moment are talking about greatness. They're talking about their status. And when Jesus comes in and says, what if you paid attention to such a little child as this? Suddenly, the disciples are confronted with their definition of greatness, with their definition of what it means to have status in the kingdom. Jesus is once again saying the same thing he did a few chapters ago, and that is deny yourself. This is just another way of saying that. To deny yourself is also the same thing that Jesus says here, that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We all have a greatness temptation. I know, I know that I do. I have a temptation in my own heart uh, that I pay attention to way too often that uh, by God's grace, he convicts me of often as well. But we all have a greatness temptation. And it's going to look differently for each of us. And so one of the questions this morning is, what is that for you? How are you tempted in this area of status, of, of, of being great? Of what does it mean to be great? Is it avoiding certain people in the office? Maybe it's a, a certain floor. You don't go down to that floor because that's where those people work. And I don't talk to them. Is it only identifying yourself with the powerful and the strong? Maybe you, maybe you are, in some form or fashion, a mover and a shaker, as defined by the world, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. But do you only surround yourself with other movers and shakers? Does the thought of being around non-movers and shakers kind of make you nervous? Does it even repulse you to use stronger language? Maybe it's in your heart. Maybe it's not even what you do, but maybe it's how you want to be seen. I think I, confess, I can confess this morning, this is probably the area where I struggle the most, is how I want to be seen. Even if it's quietly in my own heart, I want to be seen as great. Even if I'm doing something that on the outward appearance looks holy, looks honoring, looks like servanthood, what is your heart doing at times when you are serving others, when you are wishing to bless others? Is there something in your heart that's 
actually despising what you do in that moment because you have thoughts of greatness, that this actually isn't what you want to be doing, this is beneath you, and so even if it's not something that you have said out loud in your heart, you despise where you are because you feel like you deserve greatness. You feel like you deserve a name. If we've been paying attention in the Gospel of Mark, which I hope we have, we've, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus uh, picks up and raises up and lifts up children. We've seen it a lot already. We've seen him uh, raise a girl from death. Just last week, we saw him heal and lift up a demon-possessed boy. And this is the heart of Jesus Christ. So when we read here in Mark 9 that Jesus finds a little child in this house and picks him up, this is not a photo op for Jesus. This isn't uh, uh, some type of prop that he finds in this little boy to, to, to say or to appear or to demonstrate to those around him, to his disciples, hey, look how great I am. I, I would pick up this little child. Take a picture of me with him. No, we, we know that Jesus' heart is for this little one. This is, this is the kingdom ethic that Jesus is trying to communicate, that the first must be last and servant of all, that the one who is in the kingdom of God should be on the lookout on who to raise up, on who to honor, including little children. So who is God calling you to raise up? Who, who is God calling you to raise up with honor? This is not saying that everybody should serve in Kid City, right? Although that's certainly within the realm of application in this passage. And we welcome so many of you to serve in Kid City, to literally serve with our little children here at City Church. And I know many of you do as I look out and see your faces that so many of you serve in this way. So many of you have a desire that I've seen firsthand to lift up, to raise up, to honor the least of these, our little children, those who find themselves maybe on the margins. I see you. I see you do those things. And it's to be praised. It's to be, it's to, be to his glory. <clears throat> but we have to consider the, the ugliness that still reigns in our hearts at times. And so the question again is, where might this show up in your life? Where currently is there someone that you have considered not worth your time? Maybe it's a name. Maybe it's a class of people. Who in your own heart and mind have you said, that person, those people are not worth my time? Who might God be calling you to hang out with? just to grab coffee with, but you've refused up to this point because that person doesn't scratch that greatness itch. What do you daydream about? Do you daydream about greatness? Do you hunger for this type of status, this worldly status? I think the passage confronts us with these things. Jesus wants us to kill pride, and that's the, that's the short application of this part of our passage this morning. Jesus wants us to kill pride, and notice that uh, Jesus does not, he doesn't say that greatness 
is bad, what Jesus does is redefine what greatness is. And this is what we've seen over and over again. It's not, it's not as if uh, rank or position or even the aspect of being great in and of itself is a bad thing, but Jesus takes those things, turns them on their head, and redefines them in the kingdom of God. He wants a godly kind of greatness for you and for me. That's what he's after. And we know that's what Jesus is after, don't we? Because we have read our Bibles, hopefully. We know that Jesus as it says in Philippians, is the one who humbled himself. He took on flesh. He became man. He considered equality with God something not to be grasped, but in his humility took the form of a servant and died on the cross. He took the lowest rank possible in order to be the exalted king. We know that's our Jesus. And so for us, are we willing to go that way? That's the path that he's blazed for us. That's the path that he has blazed for his followers. Are you against your status being threatened? Are you against your definition of being great, of being strong, of being powerful, of being known? Are you against that being threatened? Or are you willing to be a servant of all? Verses 38 through 41, are the next part of our passage, shows us that the disciples are not only concerned about their status, they're not only concerned about who's the greatest, but these verses show that our disciples are also really concerned about their own tribe. And so the question that we're confronted with in this part of the passage is, are you against your tribe being threatened? Are you against your tribe being threatened? Apparently, the disciples have uh, been out and they at some point have seen someone, some man, who has successfully, in the name of Jesus Christ, cast out demons. Ironically, this is something that Chris showed us last week that they themselves were having problems doing. And yet, when they see this man successfully casting out demons in the name of Jesus, they try to what? Stop him. Notice they say there in verse 38 that we tried to stop him because he was not following what? Us. He was not following us. It's an interesting way to say that. Because that man was not following us we tried to stop him. You can even hear in that, in the response there, their, their declaration there, that there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of exclusivity. There's a lot of tribalism. There's, there's privilege. But we are Jesus's guys. That guy isn't. And so we, we tried to stop him. Jesus is more inclusive than we tend to think. He says here to the disciples, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. Now I want to, I want to be really careful with this passage because 
we can go off the rails, I think, a little bit with what Jesus is saying here. There are things that he is saying, and there are certainly things that he is not saying in this passage. He is not saying that we will be able to know whether or not anyone or everyone who speaks the name of Jesus and even casts out a demon will ultimately be saved. We don't know that from this passage. What Jesus says is not soon after will this person be able to speak evil of him. This passage does also not mean that the right doctrine or distinctives in our faith are not important. It says nothing about that. It's silent on that. So we, we shouldn't make that assumption either that, that Jesus doesn't care about good doctrine or distinctives. What this text does speak to is the sinful tendency in all of us to oppose and be suspicious suspicious of other tribes. There's a tendency in you and me, there's an impulse in our flesh to be skeptical, skeptical, to oppose outright, to be suspicious of the other, of that group, of the ones that are not in our privileged church, group, community, club, I had the opportunity several, several weeks ago to have lunch with another pastor of a church here in Fort Worth. And this church, um, I can honestly say, I have significant theological differences with. This is a church that with all integrity, I don't think I would be able to wholeheartedly recommend uh, anyone attending or anyone being a part of. But I was invited to this lunch with this pastor, and going into this lunch, I had a lot of cynicism. I had a lot of skepticism. My thoughts, if I confess to you this morning, were less about loving this man or getting to know this man, but how I might correct him, how I might set across from him and kind of lay out what good doctrine is, what faithfulness to God's word is. Those were, those were the thoughts I had as I prepared for this lunch. When I sat down in front of this man, I, find my, I found myself talking with someone who clearly and deeply loves Jesus Christ. I sat across from someone who clearly had the fruit of the Spirit, who was others-centered, who had a great affection for discipleship, and then, unrelated to this lunch, just a week ago, I had dinner with another man who, come to find out, has been discipled by this pastor out of a lifestyle of addiction over the past several years, to my shame and to my humility. Now, does any of this mean that my theological concerns with this church are null and void? Absolutely not. I still have those concerns. Those things are important to me. But Jesus is at work somehow in this church. He's, he's at work somehow in this church. Should I be offended that Jesus is not at work only in my tribe or my network or in my denomination? No. 
Friends, the, the kingdom of God is bigger than what you and I experience or believe at times. Heaven will be full of people that when they tell you where and how they came to hear and believe the gospel, you wouldn't believe it today. Jesus tells the disciples, the one who is not against us is for us. Don't stop him. Are you against your tribe being threatened? Are you more jealous for your group, for your community? I would say even your church. Are you more jealous for your church than the name of Jesus? I, I'm, I am pastor of City Church. I will give an account to God on the last day for you. I am jealous for you. I love you. I, I believe in the things that we have set up from Scripture as faithful. But if I'm more jealous for the name of City Church than the name of Jesus, then I've gone astray. Are you more jealous for the name of Jesus than your own group? What is, what is Judas thinking at this point, by the way? I'm going to take a, take a pause. What is Judas thinking right now? Jesus knows what's going to happen with Judas. Presumably, we, we don't know for sure, but we can only imagine that there's already been something inside uh, Judas working, knowing what, what his tendencies are in this situation. What do you think he's thinking right now? I think, I wonder, I don't know if I, how I fully have developed this out, but one of the thoughts I had this week is I wonder if that's why Jesus addresses the next topic in this passage. Verses 42 through 50. Are you against your sin being threatened? Are you against your sin being threatened? In verse 42, Jesus returns to the topic of little ones. It says there in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for someone who does that to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. Now, if we read this really casually, we might, we might think that uh, Jesus is talking about someone like a pedophile or uh, someone who is involved in sex trafficking, someone who uh, causes a little child to sin. And certainly that is within the realm of what Jesus is talking about here. Certainly that could apply in this passage. Someone who exploits children. Certainly that, that applies here. But uh, the, the term here, little ones, actually just means disciple. The, the term here actually just means an ordinary believer. So wh whoever sins and derails the faith of a disciple faces serious consequences. Sin is serious. It's deadly. And we overestimate our ability to just walk away casually from it. Moment by moment, choice by choice, decision by decision, we move in a direction where sin grips us tighter and tighter. So I, I asked the question at the very beginning, I asked the question up front, what are you most against? What are you most against? 
And Jesus, I believe, is going to help answer that question in verses 30, 43 through 48. Jesus is going to help us to see what are we most against or what should we be most against. This is a ridiculous illustration, but the other day uh, the, I showed the boys a clip from The Office. I don't know how many of you are Office fans. Uh, but this is a rather famous clip where Michael and the team are going through CPR training. You've probably have seen this. And they, they have the dummy there lying on the ground without arms and legs. And, and Michael asked this question, if we come across someone without arms and legs, do we resuscitate them? I mean, what kind of quality of life do we have there? And of course, it's ridiculous. But Jesus tells us very clearly right now that it is far better to live as an amputee in the kingdom of God where sin threatens to derail your life or the life of little ones, it is better to cut off a hand or a foot or to tear out an eye. Now, lest, lest we think that Jesus is only talking about some type of special class of really bad sinners, Lest we think that Jesus is singling out uh, just a, a few select people who really need to get serious about their faith. The kingdom of God is made up of all people who are violent against their own flesh. The kingdom of God is made up of all people who are violently against their own sin. So you need to strive to be an amputee. Strive to be an amputee. Are you in reality not against your sin, but you are against your sin being threatened? We tend to play games. We tend to be too casual. We tend to tinker around the edges. We tend to try to hold fire too close to our chest. We're going to get burned. We want to just get out the nail trimmers and clip our fingernails when Jesus is saying, no, 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 you need to get out a scalpel. You need to get out a scalpel. What, what hand are you resisting getting the scalpel out for this morning? What, what foot is your sin saying needs to stay on your body? These are the questions that we inevitably need to wrestle with this morning. And they're hard questions. Do you need to tear out the eye of unfiltered internet access for you or maybe your children? Do you need to chop off Facebook, YouTube, Amazon? That one hits hard. Do you need to sever a relationship? Do you need to leave a job? It takes the courage of the Holy Spirit that resides in God's people to do this. But there's an urgency here with Christ's words this is, not, this is not the warm hug, warm and fuzzy Jesus this morning. This is a Jesus that loves you 
that cares deeply for you and is saying some really hard things. He's asking you and me to do some violent things, in fact. He's asking you and me to consider what it looks like to follow him. And so we have to ask some probably difficult questions that we, even in this moment, don't want to be confronted with. We have to ask questions like, will not parting with your liquor collection lead to another night of yelling at your spouse and another hole punched in the wall? Will not parting with your iPad lead to an affair with another believer? Will not parting with your credit card lead to the bank coming for your house? Do you want to cut off from your kids or cut off from your hand? Do you want your wife torn up or your eye torn out? Here's the one thing that I am quite sure of. There's not too many things that I'm sure of, but I am sure of this. No amputee in the kingdom of God has ever regretted performing that surgery. No one who has ever said no to their sin and has taken extreme measures against the flesh has been sorry for doing so. On the other hand, no one will look at their wrecked life and be proud that they kept safari on their phone. No family of a husband and dad that has walked out of their life will be thankful he kept working for that company that was a constant source of temptation. Be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. We wish Judas, Judas had taken this more seriously, don't we? We wish that he would have taken more seriously his own sin and instead of trying to stop the man from doing mighty works in Jesus' name. I want to spend more time and more energy killing sin in my own life. I want to spend more time and energy taking scalpels to hands or feet or gouging out eyes than worrying about the church down the street. This is serious. Satan would love nothing more to have, than to have more two-eyed, two-handed, two-feet men and women sent into hell. So what is it maybe for you? What is it? What, what is standing in the way of eternal life? And I, I don't ask that question casually because the text this is Jesus talking to his disciples. This is Jesus talking to those who are following him. And again, it's a, it's a hard word for us this morning. What might the Spirit be asking you? What might he be compelling you, even in this moment, to take hold of the courage that the Holy Spirit gives his people and bring about repentance and faith what is he asking you? Friends, there could be a lot going on in your mind and heart right now, but here is what we know, that if you belong to Jesus Christ, whatever he is asking you to do in the realm of killing your sin 
and being violent against such things in your life that are causing you to sin or tempting you to sin, whatever that sin is in the life of a believer is a forgiven sin. It's been dealt with on the cross. And he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. This is what he's pleased to do. And so if you are his, if you are truly his, you are his forever. But he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Even as he does that work in us, we work it out with fear and trembling and we work it out often with a scalpel in our hand. These are hard things. The fact that sin requires this type of violence against it, it is a type of suffering for the follower of Jesus Christ. We don't enter into this text lightly. We don't enter into a situation where we are making these decisions to cut off uh, things that are derailing our faith. But the Spirit gives us courage to do that. But it is a type of suffering. But it's a suffering that's worth it because of what awaits us on the other side. As we end our time this morning, verses 49 and 50 talk about salt and fire. It might seem a bit perplexing to us. So what is Jesus getting at here? All of a sudden we're switching uh, metaphors, it seems, from uh, an unquenchable fire of hell to a fire that is salting God's people. There was an Old Testament practice, uh, as, as many of us know, in the Old Testament, the priest would uh, put uh, an offering on the altar. They would put uh, an animal on the altar, and what they would often do is salt that offering. They were actually commanded to salt the offering to the Lord, and then they would light that offering on fire. It would, it would be a pleasing aroma to God, the salted offering, the salted sacrifice on the altar the Christian is the salt of the world, as Jesus says. We are the salt of the world, and a purifying fire is lit against us. But it is a friendly fire. It's a friendly fire for the suffering servants of Jesus Christ. This fire, it actually salts us. It's what verse 49 says salted with fire, and it makes us distinct from the world around us. Submit yourself, therefore, to this friendly fire, and do not lose your saltiness. And indeed, we see that not only does it bring saltiness, it brings peace. There in verse 50, we have be at peace with one another. So what does this mean? What is this saying? You being most against your sin and being a living, salty sacrifice that when tested by fire is pleasing to God is a vital aspect to peace and unity in the church. It makes the church a bunch, a bunch of salty disciples for a watching and hungry world. As we wrap up, how are you doing? There's aspects to this that I've been praying this week 
against fear and shame. I've been praying against fear and shame. Brother and sister, whoever you are, if you're found in Christ, Jesus loves all of his little ones, and you are one of them. If you are found in Christ, you are a little one that he loves. And he wants to raise you up. He, he wants to, even in this moment, pick you up, take you up in his arms, honor you. You are a beloved little one of Jesus Christ. He is the one that suffered the, the hellish fire of God's wrath on the cross. He was the one that was the ultimate pleasing sacrifice for our sin. And he is our peace. So you can trust him with this. If you're in Christ, you are in Christ forever. And Jesus also loves the amputee. If you're missing a foot, he will walk to you. If you're missing a hand, he will pick you up. If you've gouged out an eye, he will restore perfect spiritual sight. So again, the question, what are you most against? Are you most against serving the lowly? Are you most against the Methodists or the Presbyterians? Or are you most against your own sin? Jesus is against your sin, but he is for you and he is with you. Let's pray. So Father, we, we love you for this. And we can only say that because you first loved us. You have made a way for wandering people. You've made a way for those who struggle with greatness temptations. You've made a way for people who tend to be skeptical of or cynical toward or maybe even despise the other You've made a way for people who are entrapped by sin. You've made a way through Jesus Christ, who bled and died for us, who gave himself up for us, who on the cross absorbed the wrath of God and became the perfect atonement for our sin, providing us with grace upon grace, unmeasurable grace and forgiveness. And it's in his name that we rejoice this morning. And we also know that you have called us to do war against sin. That you have called us to pick up the scalpel, pick up the knife, and to cut off that which is hindering us from following you. To remove from our life the things that are derailing our faith or maybe even the faith of another, one of your little ones. Spirit, I pray that you would give us courage to take the scalpel and to cut. We need your help. And we're so grateful that you give us help and give us life and give us endurance for this age as we look to the age to come. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.